Welcome to another episode of Reproducibility. I'm Amy Orban, and I'm joined today by Sophia Kruvel. Hi. And Hannah Hobson. Hey. Uh, Hannah Hobson is our guest uh, from the University of Greenwich, and we will be talking about registered reports, uh, as Hannah is actually one of the pioneers in this area, um, having done one a couple of years ago as part of her PhD. So I'm really looking forward to learning more. Um, today, we're not joined by Sam Parsons, who has an ultra marathon lab meeting booked in for, for about five hours in the departmental calendar. Oh. So we can ask him next time what his lab is doing for that amount of time. <laughs> um, I can't concentrate in any meeting over an hour. So, uh, well, we cross our fingers for Sam. Um, Let's hope he survives. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Hannah, can you can you just describe yourself as a scientist? Kind of who? What sort of scientist do you think do you think you are? Ooh, <laughs> that okay. sounds really judgmental. <laughs> wow, that's going to trigger no, the impression. No, I, <laughs> uh, uh, you know no, what I fine. mean. Um, I do know you. But mean. yeah, if you give us a quick introduction, that would be fabulous. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, hi everybody. Uh, so my area of interest, um, I'm broadly interested in language and language problems and language and communication issues. Um, so that started off in my PhD with an interest in children with autism and also children with developmental language disorder. Um, particularly interested in the overlap between those two groups and thinking about uh, their imitation skills. Um, since my PhD, I've moved more into kind of emotion and the relationship between um, communication and language and emotion processes. Um, hopefully, did you guys hear that little email noise or is it just me? Couldn't hear it. No, oh, no great. email cool. noises here. Right, okay. Um, so, yeah. So more recently, it's been about the link between um, language and communication processes and emotion. Um, yeah, that's basically me. So how how long has it been now since your PhD? Uh, the Viva was in 2016. So coming up on three years. Yeah, it was July 2016. Um, it was, yeah, very shortly after the referendum vote. Oh, God. We just bought our, <laughs> our first flat in London. And, yeah, that was a very, very bad time. <laughs> to purchase any property in London. Um, so, yeah. Sounds right. stressful. Well, at least this is not a property podcast, so we won't be asking you more about your purchasing decisions. Um, but we will ask you about open science. So kind of when did you first hear about open science? Kind of because naturally this, it's really just picked off in the last few years. So you were doing your PhD in a time where it wasn't kind of, part of a, a huge amount of conversation in psychology or or was it for you um so I mean the the gateway for open science to me was definitely my supervisor um so I was supervised by Dorothy Bishop um who if you're listening to this podcast you you've probably interacted with in order to get into a reproducibility podcast she's probably popped up somewhere I'd assume um I was very very naive when um, picking my PhD supervisors, 
So I was incredibly lucky to end up being Dorothy's PhD student. Um, and it was definitely down to luck more than uh, sense or good judgment on my part. Um, but Dorothy was, uh, I mean, she really was the pioneer and was at the forefront of a lot of these conversations about reproducibility, not really just in psychology, to be honest, but um, she was actually working with the Academy of Medical Sciences on uh, reproducibility across biomedical science. And uh, it was during my PhD that she um, suggested, like, why don't we try doing this newfangled thing called a registered report? Um, and I basically just said, yeah, sounds okay. Sounds interesting. Um and it was really through that that uh, the whole kind of open science debate suddenly opened up uh, for me. So, you know, it, it wasn't really something that was on my radar. Um, I think since then, I mean, you can't go on Twitter without finding lots of open, uh, they, like open scientists wanting to talk about um, open science. Um, I mean, the other, I suppose the other thing to say is, at the point where I had just about said yes to doing a registered report, I then took off uh, three months from my PhD to go and do a science policy internship, most of which was about reproducibility. So I kind of came out of my PhD for, for not that long, just to kind of do some other stuff and, and see if I maybe wanted to do a career in policy, and then spent most of that worrying <laughs> about the state of biomedical science. So uh, yeah, day one of that policy internship was this huge meeting with geneticists and um, neuroimaging scientists and you know Dorothy was there as well basically you're saying like so this is all the problem and this is all like what's all the stuff that isn't replicating and this is the crisis basically so I was kind of yeah I felt suddenly immersed in it very very quickly I guess in the whole debate. Mm. Nice well so one thing I was wondering about this because you you did a registered report very very early on so of course I mean yeah well now now with this background that you then you, you did this um this internship in between that you know it, it must have been very clear that this is one of the, the the possible solutions but did you at the time think that registered reports were going to become a thing um, or was it was it more like oh this is something that I'm going to try and see what happens I think it was probably probably more the latter, to be honest. Um, we at the time when we when we did our registered report, um, so clinical trials were already being you know have already been registered for a, a few years, and there was starting to you know the evidence that that was really the right thing um, and that that was having an impact on what was coming out of the clinical trials. But for for psychological research, this was it was not a thing, um, and. We, because of that, we didn't really have any blueprints to follow. So we didn't really know what what a registered report was going to look like at the different stages. Um, and actually, it wasn't that clear how they were going to be received or what, what they would really mean. Um, so actually, when when the registered report did uh, came out and got published, it was published uh, in April 2016, so just before my viva. Um, and actually... Uh, I mean, some of the conversations I ended up having around the registered report and the process of doing it were not all, they weren't all just really, really positive. So there were some people who were really um, skeptical about um, basically, you know, are, are these going to be more reproducible? Like, show me the evidence that 
a registered report is going to be more likely to be reproducible than a standard scientific report. Um, and, you know, surely, you know, are registered reports really any better? Like, couldn't you p-hack a registered report? All this sort of stuff. So, you know, actually, at the time when it came out, I was very proud of it. And I, I think I did believe, I definitely believed in the process. Like, having gone through it, I was pretty convinced that this was a better way to uh, to approach a lot of scientific questions. But I, I, I guess what I wasn't sure of was whether the scientific community would all, would all get on board with them as quickly as I think actually they have done. Um, it's, it's really interesting, though, because like we don't really yeah. have evidence yet that they are more reproducible, but somehow we those voices and conversation have become less prominent, maybe? I mean, I, yeah, um, we don't have evidence because they're just too new. Like, we have to wait at the moment. What we're going to have to do is wait for there to be enough um, registered reports and then have had enough of those registered reports attempted to be replicated in order for us to actually compare the reproducibility of a registered report versus a non-registered, like a standard scientific report. And actually, I mean, for that to happen, we're talking, what, five, ten, I don't know, like a while, <laughs> years down the line before we can actually uh, test for an effect like that. So in terms of evidence, like hard evidence, I think that criticism, I guess, holds. But what you've got to, I guess what people have maybe been more convinced by is that even if we don't have that data yet, registered reports have built into them all of the factors, all of the traits that we think make a report more reproducible than, than a standard report. So things like um, uh, limiting researcher flexibility in terms of their analyses, uh, we know that that's a, a risk factor for poor reproducibility if there's high degrees of um, a high number of research degrees of freedom. Um, things like uh, generally having better power, being more powered. So not all journals that do register reports require power analyses, but a lot of them do. Um, and that you know requires that your data are a bit better powered. Um, so there's a lot of L aspects, I guess, of, um, of registered reports that means we can expect them to be more reproducible. Um, so, yeah, I agree. It is interesting that the debate seems to have moved on about are they really any better to just kind of be accepting that probably yes. Um, I mean, I don't know if part of that might be people who've been protesting about them have like slowly faded into the background because people, <laughs> it, you know, if, if your problem is like, well, are they any better? Presumably you don't think they're any worse. So what's your issue? <laughs> um yeah, so the thing I was um, wondering about was because, I mean, you know, one, one of the aspects that is probably going to be different with a registered report, or which might be different, it's an opinion question, is the the kind of questions that are asked, right? Because they might just be mm. questions that, you know, that, that make more sense in the way that they are, that they might be interesting no matter the results, which is kind of, which would kind of make sense given the, the, um, the concept. And then I guess, you know, then you, you kind of get the problem of whether, you know, you can actually, you could even properly um, compare the reproducibility of registered reports to non-registered reports, just because maybe maybe that's sort of the, the questions asked might be to some people already like such a difference in, in what, um, in, in those two concepts or formats. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, um, I would consider... I think that you, I think you'd probably find enough 
in the future when eventually this is someone's thesis comparing um, the reproducibility of registered reports versus standard reports. You are right that fundamentally, if you just if you don't control for research question, you would almost definitely end up with quite different research questions because pre-registered reports require there to have been enough um, previous work to guide your predictions. Registered reports only really work if you have clear predictions. You have to have clear testable hypotheses. So if your research question is really exploratory or it's really, really, really novel or you're like working on a new method or something, then they're not they're not appropriate. So yes, if, if you were just comparing registered reports versus any kind of standard report that might include those sorts of questions, then yeah, you're right. That would be an issue. But I think there are, are enough standard reports being published that you know, probably could be registered reports if, if the author had chosen to do them because there is previous background literature and there are testable theories, I guess. Um, but it is a good point. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to disentangle. You would, you'd have to have a very carefully selected control group of standard reports as a future point for whoever in the future is listening to this podcast and doing their project on this. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think there are people who are now definitely looking into things um, regarding registered reports. And I know that there's been some yeah PhD places advertised to do kind of just this. So maybe we'll have somebody on the podcast in a year or so telling us about their great first year of their PhD, trying to untangle the, uh, these questions. Yeah. So, well, we'll, we'll see. Um, but the, the, so you were saying that there's, you should only really do register reports with a certain kind of question. So maybe let's take a couple of minutes to, maybe you can describe to us what was your register report about? You know, what made it well suitable um, to to be a registered report and kind of how did you experience the process of being one of the first ECRs to to go down that path of, of a registered report? Um, so the, the registered report that we conducted was basically um, looking at um, use suppression, which is an EEG uh, phenomena. So it's basically where, so if your sensory motor cortex is at, is at rest and it's not doing anything, so if you're just sat there being still, um, all of your uh, sensory motor cortical cells will fire together and you'll get lots of what's called mu power. When you then start to move or if we do something to our participants that uh, wakes up their sensory motor cortical cells, the, the cells then start to fire out of sync and you get a reduction in this power. So this mu suppression index is supposed to be some kind of measure of sensory motor cortical activity. And uh, it kind of got picked up as a potential measure for mirror neuron system engagement. Um, so mirror neurons are quite a divisive um, neuroscientific concept. Um, there have been, yes, lots of kind of fierce debates about what they are and how they got there and exactly what they do. Um, and I got interested in them basically because I was interested in autism, language and imitation and all of those things in some way had, had at some point been linked into mirror neurons. Um, so I was quite interested in trying to use this, this EEG technique, mu suppression or this EEG measure to try and test out some of my ideas. Um, and when going through the kind of background literature, so the previous mu suppression studies that have been done, uh, looking at mirror neuron stuff, I basically found that the there were some 
moderately basic methodological issues that sort of stuck out to me and Dorothy. So um, our idea was basically to look at this, to look at whether basic things like certain control conditions um, were having an effect on on mu suppression. So um, initially, when we actually sent in our stage one submission, um, we had we had kind of two parts to the project that we sent in. So one part was um, we were going to use mu suppression to test for uh, differences between gold versus non-gold directed actions, which if you're into, into imitation and motor processing is the kind of uh, an interesting factor. Um, but at the same time, we were also going to test for these sort of methodological issues. And the, the editors at the journal uh, Cortex were like, you can't really do both. This is not a well for our project because if what if you find like there's all these methodological problems, then what, what on earth is the point of part one where you're testing for these key differences? Which was a fair and valid point. Um, so we ended up then streamlining the project to basically just look at these methodological issues to, to look purely at uh, basically alpha confounding and control conditions. So we we had very clear predictions because there'd been already been a lot of new suppression work done. Um, so yeah, I think our research question suited a registered report format because we we knew what we were testing. If if, if the mirror if new suppression was a good measure of mirror neuron activity, we knew where we should see you know these significant differences across conditions. It, that that was very clear. Um, so that meant that we could quite straightforwardly construct a testable hypothesis, outline the analyses that we would need to do to test those, um, and then make sure we were adequately powered. So, yeah, that that was basically our research question and and how it fit with the registered report format. How how did you feel like the process went? Because I think from talking to other grad students and I tried to, you know, do a registered report myself and kind of gave up halfway at the beginning. It's a really daunting process. Um, and even though we now have a couple of years of registered reports to look at, uh, it doesn't really get a lot less daunting to see that some people have gone through it. So how did you feel like doing um, the register report? What were, you know, was it kind of positive all the way through? Did you? <laughs> um, so there were some really, really positive bits and then there were some bad bits. But then I think probably some of the bad bits are, in hindsight, some of just the negatives of doing research generally, like um, spending hourless, hour, sorry, hours in a, a windowless box of an EG lab testing people who um, whose data you then could use because they failed like your, yeah, what you thought at the time was a very clever attention check test right at the end just to make sure they've been paying attention. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, it turns out a lot of undergraduates can't pay attention for um, <laughs> for, for half an hour. Um so <laughs> that was quite a low point. But, and, well, I suppose if we hadn't done the registered report, we wouldn't have had this um, more rigorous um, rule that people who, who failed the attention check couldn't be in our final data set, which we pre-registered, so we were stuck with that. We, we weren't going to change it. Um, so we, I probably wouldn't have had quite such trauma uh, spending an hour and a half collecting someone's data and then at the end to be like, well, that's not going in the registered report. Um but the, I mean, the highs of doing it 
we, I mean, to be honest, the end process, after we had, once I'd hit the magic number of, of EGs that we needed, that we, we worked out we needed for a power, from our power analyses, the write-up was really speedy. Um, now, I was, I can't emphasize enough, really naive and didn't know what I was doing. And because this was also my first publication, it wasn't just like my first registered report. I hadn't published anything, period, at this point. So I didn't really have a good idea of how long these things take. Um, but I remember I was working in um, uh, an office with um, two other uh, researchers who were both at kind of postdoc level. Um, and because they'd been my office mates through the long, traumatic process of me trying to acquire all these EGs, they knew exactly how, how many EGs left I needed. And at the point where, you know, I said, oh, I've, I've finished and actually the, you know, the analysis is done, I've written it up. I remember one of them just being like, wow, that was quick. Like, that's really fast. From, from, from finishing data collection to the whole thing being written, that's, that's insane. Um, which I had, I guess I had no real basis for comparison at the time. Um, but yeah, from the final EG being collected to the sort of stage two being ready, I mean, it was a couple of months, if that, because we'd, because we'd already pre-registered the analysis we were going to do, we'd already written the MATLAB, MATLAB script for doing it. Um, it was quick. Um, so that was really positive and probably a positive that I don't think I really understood at the time. Um, but now, now trying to publish standard reports and how long it takes <laughs> to go from ending data collection to submitting and never mind then from submitting to acceptance, which is a whole other process. Um, I think looking back, that was, that was a huge positive. So do you think it's that it's mainly that we can't really we don't really understand the amount of time that goes in at the end after data collection. So by elongating the time before data collection, it feels like a painful process. It feels like you're falling behind other people or falling behind what maybe is expected of you as a as a PhD student. But actually, if you take the whole process into account, it's a very different picture. But I guess it's really hard for early career researchers to take that into account because we don't really know any better, having maybe not published, being at the beginning of our PhDs, etc. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, some of some of your listeners who are PhD students have probably already published more than I have, so um, I definitely don't want to make the assumption that um, that you guys don't know more than I knew at that point about the process. But I mean, I what I do think is from having done a PhD and having just spoken to any PhD student who I happen to bump into and interact with is everybody at some point feels like they've fallen horribly behind. So um, I think that might be, I'm not sure that's a unique feature to registered reports, but more just the experience of doing a PhD. Uh, you, it's very hard not to draw comparisons between yourself and other people who um, are also doing PhDs and, you know, came in with your cohort, but have already like, had two papers published and they're working on their third and you're still here like slaving away with the register report and oh my goodness um so i mean i think from the perspective of having done register reports and having done re done research that hasn't been reg done a register report or been in the register report format um i do think the benefits at the end are hard to overstate because it's also particularly, it's, it's not just how long it takes to write up a paper. It's also then the process of submitting that and then having it rejected. Um, and sometimes those rejections, you know, are, are, you know, you can see the argument. You're like, oh, yeah, no, fair enough. I understand why you rejected the paper. There's nothing you can do about it now. 
like that's the data that you have. <laughs> um, so that in comparison to doing a registered report where if, if a reviewer has a problem with what you're doing, they have the privilege of being able to tell you that before you spend, I don't know, six months, a year, maybe even longer collecting all this data. Um, so, I mean, this is another positive, which, again, I think I probably didn't really appreciate at the time because I was so inexperienced with publishing generally. But actually, the criticisms we got from our reviewers, who I, I still don't know who they are, but I'm hugely thankful to them. The criticisms were so constructive and helpful and um, definitely made the paper better than it would otherwise have been. So comparing that now to when I get comments from a review on a paper where the data is collected and that's it, like it's not going to change. Um, those are much more difficult. Like even if they're, you know, well-founded arguments, I can't do anything about them. So, yeah, I think, I think from the UCR perspective, or well, certainly the PhD perspective, where you're often, um, it's hard not to draw comparisons between yourself and other people. But, uh, you know, a doing a registered report is, it's a different timeline to doing a standard report. So I think if you're in the position of starting out doing a registered report and you feel like you're being overtaken, I think you, you probably need to bear in mind that it might look like that now, but the tables will probably turn <laughs> towards the end when your colleague is then trying to get this stuff published. And actually, if you've got an in-principle acceptance, well, it, it's going to be published. You know it's going to be published. Um, so I think, I mean... They, they just work to different timelines. It's a little bit difficult to draw comparisons. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that gives a lot of food for thought. Um, maybe let's mull over that in our break and we'll be back after a short interval. Cool. Awesome. You are listening to Reproducibility serving you discussion of important issues in science and psychology one mug of tea at a time do you like the taste of our podcast give us a follow on twitter at reproducibility rate us on itunes and tell other early career researchers about us if you have any questions or suggestions you can reach us on twitter or via our email address which is reproducibility at gmail.com over the next weeks we will also release some speciality flavors small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back to Reproducibility. We're joined by Hannah Hobson, who was one of the first people to do a registered report. So we're really privileged to be with her today. So Hannah, naturally, um, Dorothy Bishop is at Oxford, and I've heard her talk about your experience multiple times before hearing you talk about your experience. And what always struck me is that she always says that, you know, there was these couple of days or weeks where she thought that you, she might have ruined your academic career and, you know, maybe <laughs> that she couldn't sleep or whatever. And it, it often... It, it was really struck me when you came to give a talk in our department that you you never really had, you know, you didn't cover that sort of existential angst that she seemed to have had for you. Um, so, yeah, did, did you ever feel that way or did you realize that she was maybe a bit concerned at, at one point or another? Um, so, no, <laughs> in a sense that she she certainly was never like, 
said to me, I'm really sorry, I think I've messed up by getting you to your register report, which I guess I'm pleased she didn't because otherwise I don't know what I'd have done. Um, I was like, what? What do you mean? I'm only bought into this because you said it was a good idea. Um, so, no, I mean, certainly, like, um, certainly there were periods of general PhD angst where I was super fed up with people not finishing my EG study properly. Um, and, but no, I never, I was never that worried, I think. I think once I had the in principle acceptance, I felt quite self-reassured that all I had to do now was do the study that I said I would do, do the analyses that I said I would do, and then write up my findings. And there was a sort of zen um, calmness to that in that I was like, oh, it doesn't matter if mutopression, if, if like, if we don't find mutopression, then we don't find mutopression and we get the publication anyway, which you know, in a way, you think, gosh, isn't this how, like, all of science is supposed to work? Like, you plan the study, you do the study, you write up the findings, and there shouldn't be any what should be the other factors that interfere with that. Um, so, no, I, I didn't have the same level of angst that Dorothy seems to have quietly had. Um, but I have to say now, I mean, that was when I was a PhD student, so I'm now a lecturer, and, um, you know, the, the PhD students I interact with, I'm, you know, maybe their third supervisor, which is essentially my role is just to pick them off off the floor when they're not feeling very good. Um, but I do get PhD students coming to me here at Greenwich who are interested in um, doing a registered report or, or pre-registering on the OSF, um, on the Open Science Framework. And then when I speak to their supervisors, I guess I do see the other perspective a bit more now where the supervisor will be like, I'm just, you know, I have they have their students' best interests at heart. And what they're worried about is them doing something that they don't understand, that they can't help them with, um, or something that's going to stop, to stop them from finishing on time. Um, and that's going to mean that their student has sort of, there's financial implications to not finishing on time. Um, so I never had the angst, probably because, again, I was a bit too naive about the whole process to really understand the implications of you know what would happen if it didn't work out um but now I think I mean I certainly at the point where I actually am first supervisor on a PhD student's project I would be thinking very strongly about registered reports and pre-registration from from the get-go um so you know the I would I certainly would be prepared to put my own PhD student through it. So um, I think because I believe in the process, I believe that it made the project better. I think it has made me a better scientist for having gone through the process. I think even the stuff I don't pre-register and the stuff that doesn't end up being registered reports, I feel like I approach my research questions much better at the start of a project than I think I did before. Um, you know, I'm much more aware of, you know, thinking forward to like, well, what if we find this? How are we going to know it wasn't all confounded by that? You know, doing all that creative and critical thinking at the start before you've collected the data, which is obviously the point where you should do it. Um, so, yeah, no, I wasn't super angsty about it. And I would I would do it. I would inflict this upon somebody else. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think this uh, this leads us nicely to our next uh, little thing about um, sort of what your advice would be um, to to ECRs in general. Um, so, like, kind of like, to, yeah, could you tell us about like what you think um, 
you learned in particular? And then I did, yeah, we did want to ask you about the, uh, like what, what what exactly you you will do if you, when you have a PhD student. Um, but I think you kind of already answered that. Oh, but yeah, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you have some other um, like sort of bits of wisdom on um, what your plan will be when like, you know, when you will force your PhD oh, student to do a when the time report. comes yeah when the time comes like I'll, well, what I'll do is I'll do a door exhibition like how would you feel about this it's a kind of a new thing you know don't we just have a think about it <laughs> and then just never reveal that I'm cut up about it um so uh in terms of advice for ECRs so um I mean so first of all if you're an ECR so you're a PhD student or a postdoc or a junior research fellow and you're thinking about doing um, a registered report well, good for you. Um, there, you know, I think first of all, well done for considering it and being at that point, um, because you are by thinking about doing it, you are considering doing something that's quite mold breaking and that is quite new. And there's, you know, there's more more of them have been done in the last few years, but they're still pretty novel, pretty unusual. So, you know, well done to start for thinking about doing something quite different. Um, I think the things to bear in mind is, so first of all, think about your research question. Are you doing a piece of research where it's really novel and um, you're creating a brand new method and it's really exploratory? If you're doing something really, really exploratory and novel, it's probably not the time to do a registered report. Um, that's not really the research question I think they work for. The, the research questions that registered reports are well suited to are hypothesis testing um, kind of approaches where you have a, a hypothesis and a prediction based on previous literature. Um, so, I mean, a replication is an extreme example. It doesn't have to be a replication, but it, it does need to be in an area where there's some work that's gone before it. So first of all, think about your research question. Um, is there work that's gone before that means you now have clear predictions for the data? If the answer is yes, then proceed to stage two, which is... Um, do I have the, the resources available to me to do a registered report as I would like? So um, probably the biggest resource before we get to money is actually time. If you're on a six-month postdoc post contract, then you are not going to have time to do a registered report because you have got to submit your introduction, your methods, often your analysis plan to a journal and wait for peer review and then potentially you, know, you to respond to that peer review before you can even start collecting the data. So there is a delay. If you're doing a registered report process, you can't just start collecting the data immediately as you usually would maybe for a, a typical uh, scientific report. So you've got to think about the timeline. Um, now, if you've got a, a good PI that's going to talk to you about it, you know, maybe draw up a timeline, really work out how much time do I have and how much time do I afford to spend doing a registered report, um, then that's probably a really good to do as soon as possible so you don't run out of time um, if you do have time um, then I would suggest having a look at if you if you I mean if you just google open science framework registered reports um, there's like an OSF page that comes up that's got loads of um, really useful resources about registered reports including one big excel file that some open science fairy just updates I don't know who they are but someone does it um, which includes like all of the journals that offer registered reports currently. And within that is included um, things like um, power requirements um, and stuff. So, so the journal that we published with, Cortex, um, required us to have a certain amount of power for all of our pre-registered analyses. 
But not all journals require that. And the reason that that's important to know about is because obviously if you need, you know, 90% power, that's going to influence how many participants you're going to have to recruit. And that's going to influence how much money your experiment is going to cost. So, you know, once you think you've got enough time to do a register report, the next thing is to think, okay, where could I send this? Uh, if I want to do a register report, um, you know, what what kind of things, what what things are going to be important to you? Is is it just like, well, I can only realistically get this many participants because they're a clinical population and anything else is going to be madness. So I'm going to have to find a journal that's okay with that, uh, with that level of power. Um, so, yeah, I think research question time, looking at the journal requirements and thinking about which one is going to work. Um, I would really suggest reaching out and having a conversation with somebody that, you know, you probably do know someone who's at least attempted to register a report. So chatting to them, um, someone in your field that's, that, work, that has worked this way and getting an idea of like how it was and what kind of things they found in their area um, were problematic or challenging. Um, I mean, and then the other thing, I guess, for ECRs is it, this is difficult if you're in a lab or in a group where the person heading that lab doesn't really want to work this way right now. That's hard. There's, there might not be much you can do about that, to be honest. And that might mean that right now you can't do a registered report. I mean, and that that is sad, but that doesn't mean you can't do one in the future. Um, so uh, if that is you, don't lose heart because the, I don't honestly these aren't going away. Um, we're not going to run out of registered reports. Um, so it, it may be that right now where you are in your PhD studies or in your postdoc, you're just not going to have the opportunity to do one right now. Um, what you could consider doing is pre-registering things on the open science framework, which doesn't take as much time. It doesn't give you quite the benefits that doing a registered report does, but it does train you in that, in that, uh, mode of, doing all that pre-planning and, and um, working in a pre-registered way. So you could try and uh, working that way for now if a registered report really isn't something you're able to do at the moment. So that was a long ramble, but hopefully someone <laughs> that is some advice. Um, well, I think it makes it very clear that, you know, there's so much involved in getting an actual registered report off the ground that if you have everything around it, great if if you don't you know it's very good that you're already considering it and it might be that later down in your academic career in the next couple of years you will be able to do it and not to beat yourself up about it I guess yeah definitely I, I mean I think you've got to um you've got to do what you can where you are I think and um if you don't have the time or the resources to do one now then then well in time you know one day you will be the professors and the you know in charge of purse strings and able to set these sorts of agendas um and i think it's also just maybe continuously raising it so you know at the point where someone in your lab is like oh, i think i'm going to do a replication just saying like oh why don't you pre-register it um you know if, if you've if you've got such clear pre predictions why not pre-register it because why wouldn't you um, so you can sort of chip away at it that way as well, like just encouraging the the discourse around doing registered reports as much as you can. Um, but yeah, hope that helps for anyone who's out there wishing to do a registered report but but feeling frustrated that they can't just yet. Yeah, I think that was a really nice summary. Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, for any for any and all of our listeners, I think this has been hugely informative and also just very interesting to hear an inside perspective on these. And um, I'm sure that, yeah, if anybody has any more questions, do just pop them on our Twitter or on our email and we can ask Hannah um, to about these maybe later on or you yeah. can send her a message as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, thank you so much hannah for for joining us um we'll also hannah's got some pieces of further reading which we'll put in the show notes um but yes thank you so much for joining it's been such a pleasure to have you on oh um, thanks well thanks thank you for having me <laughs> um, yeah thanks a lot guys great and thank you for our listeners for listening um until next time bye bye bye